Welcome to the podcast Rise and Play. I am Sophie Vaux, your podcast host. I bring together leaders, entrepreneurs, fund makers, investors, and educators who are here to make a change in the industry. For a brighter and healthier future of the games we will make, and how we will make them. We're here to start a conversation because listening and asking the hard questions is sometimes enough to inspire change in us, to take the leap to. Let's begin. Today, I am delighted to have Tom Hammond with me on the podcast. Tom got started in games with his first company, Theorem Rich, which brought rewarded service to the mobile gaming space. As he got into working with game developers, he noticed there wasn't a consistent platform to operate their games, with each studio building the same tools over and over again for live ops. That's what eventually led him to starting UserWise, his second company, where they're building the world's first player experience management platform. Additionally, Tom started a podcast series called Master the Retention, sharing the live up best practices from top professionals to continue to elevate the industry. Hi, Tom. Glad to have you. How are you today? Hi, Sophie. I'm, I'm so glad to be here. And I'm so glad that uh, you've started your podcast series as well. I think Um, the more we can share information out there, the better everyone will be and, you know, the better we'll build our game teams and games. So I'm, I'm just delighted to be here with you. And for me, it's, uh, as I mentioned before we started, it's really funny because you started to contact me for the podcast and now it's my <laughs> turn and I can ask you all my burning questions. Be gentle with me. <laughs> so my, my first question is, of course, around the podcast itself, um, before we get more into the questions about the company. I was curious, first, how is it going overall with the podcast, Mastering uh, Retention? What are, is coming for you and how did you start this? Yeah, you know, I, I was a little unsure when we started Mastering Retention, you know, like, are people actually going to listen to this? Are we going to provide value? And and really where we kind of saw the, the niche is, you know, you, you've got like your Deconstructor of Fun um, and, and other podcasts out there, but they always tended to be Uh, really kind of high level in gaming, which is like great if you want to learn like what's going on. But for all of the game teams, the product people, it, it just seemed like there was kind of this void of, you know, how do I do things like game economy design or uh, live ops or actually create, you know, different features and things like that? How do I handle product management situations, A-B testing, all that sort of fun stuff, uh, which, you know, everyone is kind of struggling with. And we just didn't really see that there were good points for this. I had questions about that stuff and I struggled to find that information. And unless I was willing to watch like a hundred hours of GDC talks uh, to cycle through and maybe find the things that I was looking for, it was just difficult to find stuff. And so we saw a kind of a need in the industry and uh, just started talking to different folks and kind of having them on looking for experts in different fields. Luckily, we've had just so many amazing guests that are willing to come on and share their opinions and things. But it really hit for me, I think, so Genshin Impact launched like last September or something like that. And we launched the podcast maybe like a month before that or something. But I remember it, I actually uh, connected with a guy at my Hoyo and, and he reached out to me directly on LinkedIn and was just like thanking me for the Mastering Retention podcast. And he found it so you know, insightful and useful. And I was like, whoa, you know, this guy's over in China. Never connected that with them before, but like he's found and listened to and appreciated, you know, the content that was on here. 
Um, and that was just really cool to hear. Um, so it's always super exciting to hear, you know, oh yeah, <laughs> I just listen to mastering retention when I'm like doing my workouts in the morning or something like that. And I get so many like great insights from, you know, the guests that are on there. So I, I love doing it um, and hope that I get to continue to do so. That's a great story. Maybe for the background and the start, well, how long ago was it? And how many episodes have you yeah, published so far? Yeah, so we're at the end of June today. Um, and I think we started, did our first one in like early August of 2020. So yeah, just, just shy of a year. <laughs> so I think we're at like 47, 48 episodes, something like that. Wow. Yeah, and consistently every week, as I have noticed, like you've been on a good production uh, frequency, you know. Uh, <laughs> all right. Then we'll come back a bit uh, to it later because I have also other questions to um, around the other things. But uh, back then to your company, your very first company, I wanted to hear more like how you started your first company, uh, the Theorem Rich. When was it? And I, I don't know, like for what you were doing before, what made you take the leap to start your own company in games? Yeah. So I feel like I often have to pinch myself to be like, am I really like uh, working with different game developers? And like, I've had the chance to work with some of like the biggest games that were out there, even some games like, you know, I think one of the games that really got me into the idea of mobile game development was like Fruit Ninja. And I've actually gotten to work with those guys directly and help them with things. And it's just so cool. So I, I frequently have to pinch myself and be like, am I actually, you know, just dreaming or I'm actually here? But uh, so Theorem Reach is a interesting story, but it goes back a little bit further. I have always had what I consider to be the sickness or the entrepreneurial sickness where, you know, I, I see something new, like, you know, say this new Google Pixel here, and I'm like, oh, that's cool. But what if we changed this or what if we did this thing better? And so before Theorem Reach, I had a number of actually failed companies where I was like, oh, that would be super cool, you know, if we did this and we changed that. But uh, Theorem Reach started out, there was a phone that would actually pay you for viewing an ad on your lock screen. It's now defunct and there's been a few other clones and different things that came out there. But I was like, well, that's cool. But what if we asked you a question instead? You could probably get paid more you know, be more interesting than viewing the same ad, etc. And so that got me noodling on the idea of surveys. At that point in time, I played way more Clash of Clans than I would ever like to admit, but I just starkly refused to spend money on the game. Uh, they finally converted me to a payer, but I really wanted my fifth builder and I didn't want to spend on gems. I was like, I'm not going to drop 20 bucks on this game just to get this fifth builder when I can spend, <laughs> you know, $20 and get the complete Diablo 2 LOD chest that's going to give me, you know, thousands of hours of my time. But it finally hit me. I was like, oh, what if I could take surveys to get these gems for free? Oh, I would do so many surveys and, you know, finally get access to all these gems. And so it was just like a click for me. So it actually, I took the approach of the player. Whereas at that point in time, uh, I'd actually gone to school for pre-med and I got my first job at a healthcare IT company while I was kind of studying for the MCAT, which is like the medical admission exam. And, and this idea kind of came along the way. And I ended up meeting my first co-founder, Garrick, in a Stanford entrepreneurship class. And he kind of had different ideas, but in the same realm, coming a little bit more from like the advertising side of things, ad tech. However, we, we struggled to find a co-founder. 
And so this is the main difference between Theorem Reach and the other companies that kind of failed. So rather than just trying to find somebody else and rely on it, I was like, well, I really want to make this thing happen. So I just taught myself how to code and kind of built out the complete platform and things, which was a very uh, interesting learning experience. <laughs> but it worked, got us to where we are. Eventually, we brought on a co-founder, CTO. He, uh, you know, rewrote all of my code and made it thousands of times more, you know, efficient and, and better and production ready and such. But, you know, it was a good experience to go through because I learned how to code and I learned how to think like a coder. And I now know, oh, if I'm going to ask you to do this, well, that probably takes like five minutes. That might take five weeks. Um, <laughs> and so just a really good exercise, I think, to go through. Yeah, you know, I would say ultimately Theorem Reach started because I wanted free gems in Clash of Clans. Uh, so just a very passionate player. And so that was, I guess, eight years ago now. That's crazy. Now that company continues to grow and do well. And then uh, along the way, you know, we started doing more work with games on the monetization side of things for the most part, which eventually led to more uh, live ops related things and retention and all sorts of stuff, fun stuff. But uh, yeah, we kept hearing you know, every studio is running into the same two problems. The first one is, how do I make a new game that is so engaging and so captivating and so awesome that you're willing to abandon all the time, money, and energy you've spent in your existing game, which apparently we should learn from you guys. This is, I'm really excited for uh, Plantopia. But then, you know, if you manage to do that, uh, you have the second problem, which is how do you keep players around for the long term? Um, and this is something that even the biggest game companies in the world are struggling with. You look at Trivia Crack, and in 2014, they had like 25 million daily active users. And over time, it's just slowly kind of gone down. I mean, they're still up there with like 2 million daily active users, but that's far from where they were back in the day. So, you know, even if these huge, massive games struggle with keeping players around, how can a smaller studio be able to do that? And so we realized that there's really, while well, there's tools for like scaling your game, like your AWS cloud servers, Azure, there's stuff for building your games, your Unities or whatnot, even some of those backend things like PlayFab or Beamable, there's really nothing for actually operating your game day-to-day, -day, scheduling, planning, you know, what is my game calendar going to look like? How do I ensure that every time the players come back, there's something fun and interesting for them to do? And so we saw studios creating all sorts of uh, fun fun little uh, services to be able to do these types of things. Uh, even studios with like tens of millions of dollars a year, I saw them like pushing raw JSON into a special Google Calendar that the game could download. And as long as everything was right, one single event could display for players. And uh, we just realized with what we've built already, uh, we've got a firm infrastructure. We could come in and just streamline this and make it a lot better. I mean, how much waste is going on right now? Like with the Battle Pass, over 50% of the games now, at least in the top like 100, have a Battle Pass. But that was individually created at each of those different studios. And it's basically the same fundamental stuff, right? But they had to spend all this time architecting stuff and implementing it and testing it, where it's like, if we created that framework one time and you just kind of roll it out and then you can just kind of implement that framework, like we could have saved so much time and effort that could have been spent on creating, you know, some more useful or interesting feature for the game. Uh, but that's uh, kind of where UserWise is and, and why we created it. We just saw a huge need in the space and 
to tell you the truth, I wasn't even sure that I wanted to build UserWise at first because it seemed like a large daunting project, but I just kept hearing over and over again from different studios, like, I need this thing. Like, I desperately need this thing. And so finally, I just capitulated and, and realized that, yeah, we should build this because people actually really need this service. Yeah, a few interesting points in your journey as a, an entrepreneur. By the way, just for a funny anecdote, the fact that we push uh, raw JSON files, I was part of these teams when we did it on a very big game. I will not mention which one, but I know very much this experience where <laughs> I was actually the product manager pushing these events. And I can tell you, I was triple checking like every line. So we didn't have errors. And when it happened, it was a mess. So I know very much this pain. <laughs> It's very interesting then the journey you had from Theorem Rich and to UserWise. Uh, and I want to come back in a few points really as uh, as you describe really with the entrepreneur mindset. And first, and we see that as well in games and we talk about it, it starts with a need. And funnily for Theorem Rich, it started with your need mm -hmm. as a player. And I was curious then as you, for me, it sounds like you created yourself and the prototype with the MVP thinking. As I, as I understand as well, your company is uh, bootstrapped the first. So how did you start this alone, uh, like mm -hmm. just savings and let's see what happens? Like what was the whole thinking of building this first company? Yeah, I mean, so I, I kind of started it with my uh, initial co-founder that I met in that Stanford entrepreneurship course. And then mm -hmm. like a year or two into it, we kind of brought on our, our third co-founder. Yeah, I, I don't know that we necessarily meant to be bootstrapped. Uh, it just kind of happened that way that we oriented and we're like, well, okay, we need to cover these bills. So we need to figure out how to make money early on. Um, and so we did. And then I remember we were actually looking at doing a raise at one point and it was like a small round, like a seed round of like 500,000 or something like that. But for whatever reason, like a few months later, we'd reached like mm -hmm. that amount in monthly revenue. And we're like, well, we don't really need to raise. And so then we just kind of kept pushing on. And I think just due to like the programmatic nature of partnerships and things like that, like we were able to scale that business to like an eight figure business without really having to bring on any team members or things like that. So it's just always something that we consciously thought of, of like, how do we build things in such a way that they're scalable and doesn't require a lot of like input and management and things like that. Mm -hmm. And to the transition to user-wise, and again, starting with a need, I think it's really interesting that you said, like, maybe, of course, you didn't have a grand vision, like, okay, we start with Theorem Rich, and then years after, like, what is the next stage of a company? And user-wise, it sounds it, uh, like it started also with a very specific need as you were connected with other professionals, and let's build something that people actually need. <laughs> Yeah, so I I made a lot of mistakes with Theorem Reach, so many mistakes. But mm. uh, I I remember uh, there was a guide that I used to follow, where he kind of outlined and he said, you know, if I was going to start a company today, the first thing that I would do is start a podcast, and I would go out to. 50 of like my most ideal customers, the people that I would want to work with, and I would get them to kind of come onto my podcast and share information with their peers, useful stuff. And over time, I'm going to kind of learn more about what their problems are. And eventually, probably I'm going to notice that there's, hey, everyone is kind of having this same problem. You know, is that something I can solve? 
from a technological perspective and with the resources that I have? And if so, then, you know, maybe we start a company around that. But over time, I'm building up this audience of people that are trusting me, finding valuable insights and things. And hopefully when I get to the point of actually releasing that product, they'd be willing to check it out and give it a try maybe. And hopefully if I do my job right, it'll actually solve their problems for them. So it's not exactly the approach that we took with UserWise. So what I did first with UserWise is I went out and I talked to probably somewhere between like around 50 different studios of various sizes, ranging from your like uh, Zingas of the world down to your like, you know, small little three to five person studio and stuff. And I started out and I just kind of asked two basic questions. And I said, uh, the first one, you know, if there are two to three problems that you're looking to solve in the next year related to, I think I said live ops, what are they? And then I said, you know, if I had a magic wand and I could give you anything in the world, what would you want the most? And resoundingly, <laughs> the questions uh, all tended to trend toward the premise of it's very difficult to be able to deliver uh, segmented experiences to players over the air and manage that complexity and ensure that I'm not introducing like errors in my game or breaking the economy because I give you know too much content to players. All the stuff that we ultimately decided, yeah, we can fix all this stuff with user-wise by just creating a streamlined experience. And so ideally, when you do those interviews, you kind of have a product in mind and what they're saying is exactly what you've built and it's like a match made in heaven the reality is is it's never the same and so you need to go back to the drawing board and actually make sure that you're building something that uh, meets the needs of, of what they're looking for it's actually a premise that i think can work for almost anything i've actually taken the approach and adjusted it for coming up with new game ideas as to like what you should actually build when i work with new studios i'm like okay well what game should I create? Because there's a million games that I could make, and there's probably only that are like two that are like legit that I should spend my time doing. Yeah, and I think it's really the tricky point when you're talking to your potential customers on the assumption that they even know what they need. It's uh, I think it's the biggest <laughs> challenge, right? So it's a uh, well, we we look a lot at it in the user research. It's trying to cross all the points of data, qualitative, quantitative, what people do, what people say, what are the pain points. It's mm -hmm. it's really a tricky. And what uh, you are doing, basically, it's like the back and forth. You're building, what is the assumption? You present it, okay, you adjust it, and it's needs uh, resilience to go through this whole process until you have the product. Yeah. And even going through that process, I think we still had like two or three pivots with user-wise before we finally got to the product where, you know, I show it to the product managers and their eyes kind of light up of like, oh, this is great. Uh -huh. uh, so, it, you know, it, it building and creating anything new and unique and really useful, I think just takes time, especially if you're trying to get it right. That's just the process of building things I've found. Yeah. Well, congrats then really for this journey and with your first company and then second one like uh, where you're in this journey right now. And uh, a bit further then on the also the podcast that you started like a year ago, because also it's somehow connected to user-wise, there's a branding around it. Yeah. I wanted to also hear your motivation of, you know, the time you've put into it for, uh, I know it myself now doing <laughs> it, so I know the work it is. And so really 
yeah, what was your motivation to start it or continuing it? What does it bring you? Yeah, so we're in this like unique position with UserWise where UserWise is actually funded by Theorem Reach. So we don't have like a strict time limit of when we have to get things built. And, you know, mm -hmm. we kind of have the luxury of time to do things as I call it the right way. And so I, I really love that kind of audience first approach. And something that I really wanted to do with company number two was how do I give back to the gaming industry that's been, you know, so good to us with Theorem Reach? Like, how do we give back? And so the way that we're doing that, at least initially, is by trying to provide as much useful content um, as possible. So, you know, how do we help people get better at XYZ? How do we share learnings and mistakes that other folks have made so that you can avoid making those in the future. And then hopefully you can do the same for them and, you know, just help everyone make better games together. And so um, a large part of our strategy at UserWise is let's just have podcasts, have blogs. We started this uh, new community that we call the UserWise Academy, where we're hosting kind of masterclasses, just like you're doing on Rise and Play, but, you know, different aspects. So like, How do I add analytics to my game? What's the right way to think about analytics or A-B testing or, you know, whatever you're trying to do. And then within the community, we kind of wanted to keep it free, but private. So you have to actually be working on games professionally to kind of get in from a product perspective. But if you're doing that, like it's open, uh, people are encouraged to ask any sort of questions that they might have. You know, we want to just kind of a community where you can talk a little bit more openly than you can maybe on some like social media platforms or uh, different things like that, but just, you know, fostering uh, better game creation and stuff. And so, I mean, there is a business aspect to that too, which is, yeah, when you go to the podcast, when you go to the community, you're going to see UserWise. You're probably going to know what UserWise is about. Chances are right now, you probably don't need game operation software, but maybe at some point in the future, you'll have a new game and you don't want to like rebuild the stuff that you made in 2017 that barely works anymore and you can just plug and play user wise and maybe it will work for you maybe it won't we don't really care <laughs> but you know it's it's there it's top of mind but we're providing a lot of value and stuff in the meantime so um it, it's kind of a dual tangled approach but it allows us to just kind of like give back uh to the gaming community uh, while you know we take our time to just you know build the stuff that we think will also provide a lot of value And I have to say that definitely when um, I was participating to your podcast and then so also the, uh, later on the Academy, for me, for sure, inspired me a lot as well to, well, especially some reflection during the pandemic year. Yeah, what, how can we make the most of our time? And uh, you definitely inspired me a lot as well in mm -hmm. this giving back. You know, like so much experience here. And uh, I, I follow also a lot of your content, your posts on LinkedIn. Uh, of course, the podcast and uh, UserWise Academy, really cool. I also love the branding about we don't charge like, uh, I don't know, GDC or conference. And you have like really <laughs> the top professional still like sharing really insights. And I, I love that. And it's it was also very uh, bold, like for once, like going to a conference that is free. So it really inspired me also to take a step there and not overthink it and just share, you know, because uh, if you if we, I think we are passionate about being in this industry we want to see it grow and we we have a part to play so thanks a lot again for building all of that amazing content very insightful and uh looking forward to what's next of this yeah <laughs> yeah it it's amazing 
you know, some people are definitely like willing to help with a blog or a podcast or different things like that, which is amazing. But um, there's a lot of people, um, myself included, uh, where we all kind of suffer from the imposter syndrome where you're like, what would you like to be on the podcast? And it's like, oh, uh, you know, I don't know if I have anything like useful to share or to say. Um, But to tell you the truth, some of my like all-time favorite podcast episodes have come from some of those people that are just like nervous of like, I don't know that I, you know, have anything worthwhile, uh, you know, saying or sharing. And then, you know, they get done with the podcast and they give it a listen and they're like, wow, was that me? Like, did I actually say that thing? Like, I sound really smart. Like, I didn't realize that I knew so much. So um, those types of things are, are super delightful. And yeah, you know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a podcast either that you share stuff on, like even just mentoring a, a new employee on the team or something like that, you'd often be surprised how much we pick up and we learn without even really realizing that we do. Yeah, it's fascinating what uh, can come out of discussion and uh, then sharing it as well with others. I think this is the whole point. Okay, then now switching more to you personally. So I'm curious more as well, like how, first, what are like uh, the values driving you usually in your personal life or work life as I I know at what time you wake up, Tom, because we have scheduled we have scheduled <laughs> some calls quite early for you. So I was just curious, like really overall, like uh yeah, what are what are the values that drive, you know, like your life, your decisions, how you structure your whole life? Yeah. So something that I, I try to do and I would admit that I often fail on this, but um, it's something that I continue to strive for, um, which is I try to often kind of take a walk and and get away from things and think about my life 30 years from now or 50 years from now, hopefully, you know, when I'm laying on my deathbed um, and reflecting back on the things that I'm doing, the things that I'm spending my time on, am I going to have any regrets When I do that and reflect back to my college years where I probably spent, I don't know, like 2,000 hours playing League of Legends, I do have a little regret. Like, I I enjoyed playing it, but did I really need to play it that much? Like, could I have taken half of that time and put it towards something more useful, more interesting, where I, like, I would feel much better about how I spent my time now that I'm here? And so uh, I definitely try to implore that. I have a very blended work-life balance. My kids and family are super important to me. So I try to like build my structure that I like get to have time in the morning with breakfast with them. Like I can get home, see them again at lunch. And then I've got, you know, a fair bit of time in the evenings that I can also spend, you know, helping them uh, hopefully develop into uh, awesome human beings. (laughs) I think the more time you invest, you know, the better off you can be. So like that's really important to me. I I do wake up really early and work out. Part of the reason that I get up so early is so that I can get done with my workout and get home before my kids wake up. Uh, So if they weren't a part of it, I probably would be a little bit later, but uh, they're there. And so I I do want to stay fit uh, largely so that I can actually do things with my family. Like, you know, as the kids get older, I want to be able to do adventurous trips, backpacking together, whatever we, we choose to do. I also kind of view that as like work time. Mm -hmm. Like it's generally just me at the gym. And so I can like toss on an audio book or just have like time to think about things. Amazing the insights that you have when it's just like, Mm -hmm. there's no interruptions 
and you can just think about things. And actually, when you're doing physical activity or anything that really focuses you to like concentrate on what you're doing, you know, physically will actually activate the creative side of your brain too. So that combination of working out and thinking about things uh, has often led to some of my best insights. And, well, you know, I feel like the nature of work has changed. Like it's no longer, oh, I did 203 emails today. Yesterday, I only did 201, you know, super productive. That stuff generally doesn't matter in the creative industry. It's more about like, Mm -hmm. can you come up with a creative solution to a problem that is going to boost XYZ by 20 or 50% or or whatever? And so I I try to build that time in where I can just like, oh, I'm going to read for an hour each day, or I'm going to go for a walk for an hour or two. Um, just to have that creative space to to think about. But in terms of personal life, family, faith, friendships, and then, you know, probably work would be uh, number four. But, you know, related to work is also what we're trying to do. It's like an overarching vision. Like, I don't really view it as about me. <laughs> I I will admit that when I started my first company, I figured oh, we'll just grow it to XYZ and then we'll sell it and then maybe I'll do something else or I'll retire or whatnot. But I, I really come came to just love the journey <laughs> of building. We've you know turned down acquisition offers because we love what we're doing and we want to keep doing it, hopefully for the rest of our lives. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's interesting how things have kind of evolved and changed, but just being able to impact people. And I feel like, you know, the bigger your team grows, like there is added responsibility of, oh, I've got employees now. I need to like make sure that I'm taking Mm -hmm. care of them and their lives. But it's really awesome to be able to like give an awesome employee the raise that they totally deserve or to give them the support that they need when they're going through something, you know, with like a family thing or something like that. So um, I just find it super rewarding there. Yeah, it's very sweet to... Thanks for sharing. And I think it's important as well as, yeah, when we think about life, it's not just about work and it's good to do. You seem to have your priorities in check, you know, about the family and personal, really important. And then everything is connected, right? So even the work and how your philosophy of work is really uh, influenced (laughs) by how you approach life. So that was really uh, sweet to hear more about it. And then as a transition then to the company, and as you mentioned, you have uh, you have had to have employees and grow. I don't know if you have them, verbalized them in your company, but for sure as a CEO, you have them at, in your heart. What uh, would you say are the values you have in your company culture, and especially as an independent company, uh, as I understand, which is a great benefit. It's, it's rare these days. Yeah. Um, so our core values is we look for people that are creative, accountable, masterful, and user-focused. I really don't like managing people. In fact, I probably kind of suck at a man as, as a manager, which is why my co-founder who's super empathetic is mm-hmm. usually the direct report that everyone kind of goes to. When I think about a manager, I, I want someone that takes a close look at you, Sophie. And not only do they see everything that you are, all your faults, all your good things, but they actually see a better version of you than you see of yourself. And they say, Sophie, I know that you can get here. Here are some things that you can do so that you can rise up to this. And when you fail, they see it and they hold you accountable. But when you do the steps that like get you to there, Sophie, I knew you could do it. That was amazing. 
I know you can go even further now, but they've got to be like super focused on you. I think that is the, the best managerial mindset. I tend to be a little bit higher level at the business, overarching vision, company type stuff. So we, we blend that a little bit. But when it comes to like the core values that we look for, we really want masterful mm-hmm. people. Like there's a book by Reed Hastings, No Rules Rules, Netflix's culture. Uh, we try to emulate that as much as we can. I would rather hire one amazing developer than like three or five average developers. And that one amazing developer probably still gets way more done than all of the other ones combined. Um, so we look for people that are really masterful. Um, we look for people that are really creative, uh, really able to think outside the box because again, the nature of the work that we do, I think it isn't just like a right a thousand lines of code per day or, you know, do these emails or send this or calls, you know, you've got to be creative in terms of how you're doing things. Um, but at the core of everything we do, we want it to be user focused, like really understand the mindset of the users that you're building for, what they're actually trying to do, how they're accomplishing it, making their flow as best as it possibly can. As a, a basic example, let's say I'm building a survey tool. If I'm really having the mindset of a user, I'm not just building, oh, I can add single choice and I can add multiple choice and then I kind of check the box and I'm done. But if you put your mindset in the user, like what's it going to be like when they're actually using that tool? Well, I probably have a survey written over here in Word, so now I have to like copy and paste it or re-enter it. It you know, takes a lot of time. You know, if I'm thinking about it, hey, it might be really nice to just have like a bulk import button where I can just like paste in the entire Word doc and I just generate all the questions for you directly. You know, there's lots of different applications of that, but that's like the combination of like really being focused on the user and what they need and coming up with creative solutions of how you actually uh, engage on those things. And then finally, because I don't really want to be managing somebody all the time, I would rather just say, hey, here's this thing, go make it awesome. We look for people that are actually going to be accountable and, you know, willing to kind of do that on their own. Obviously, we're there to help them if they need to be, but, you know, nobody really wants a micromanager in their lives, right? Yeah, it's shifting to more uh, autonomous teams, uh, self-organized people uh, are looking for ownership. By the way, how many are you now in the company? Yeah, uh, so we're a team of about 10. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I would say it's even more important. Like each person, like really matters, it counts because it's not about the quantity. Uh, yeah, and the quality, like really of people. Yeah. Wow. So much getting done in such a small team. <laughs> and uh, as a CEO, through like you, you seem to have a clarity as well, like on these uh, values you have, where where is your like um, moral compass, and when you have hard decision to make, probably that you should have have to make as a CEO. You have an example where you had to make a really hard one, and how how did what was the thought process to to make this hard decision? I feel like typically, I don't know, maybe because I most relate to people as people, probably management of, you know, hiring or firing are are probably some of the the hardest things that you have to do. So I I won't go into any details of letting someone go, but um, Mm -hmm. I would say there is a book that I read that is, I don't remember the name of it offhand, 
but uh, it, it basically, you go through it and it talks about how everyone kind of has this sage or this like inner compass. And then they have these detractors that hinder you from being your best self. So one of mine is basically this idea that I like to avoid doing like really difficult things or things that I don't necessarily want to do. So as an example to my wife's chagrin, she wanted me to, I don't know, change something like really up high. I really didn't want to do that. So I like brought the ladder in and I left it sitting there and it sat there for, I don't know, like a week or two. It's like a three minute, like two minute task or something like that. And so, you know, eventually I like, okay, I need to like, just get over this and do it. But like, had I just done it right away, it would have like, how much brain space was wasted every time I walked by the ladder that's like sitting, oh, I should, should really do that. You know, I really don't want to do that thing. And so acting on those hard decisions, I think that was one of the lessons that I had to learn of like, if you know that something needs to be done, the faster you do it, the better it's going to be for everyone. I remember one time we had an employee that we probably shouldn't have hired. This was before we really had a good hiring framework or understood how to like hire people. They also happened to be a friend of one of the founders and all the things that we never should have done. But when they didn't work uh, in one aspect of the business, instead of just kind of like, hey, this just isn't the right fit for you. I think you will do really good at a company like this, but you know, as a small team, we just don't have the resources to support the kind of work environment that you need to be in. Even though we recognized that, we decided, hey, let's put them in a different role. Like maybe they'll do better. And I think we did this like two or three times in like six months mm-hmm. blocks in there. And so we ended up taking like, I don't know, way too long to actually cut ties with someone where I think like we all knew the answer way back in the beginning. Um, So now the mantra that we have with hard decisions is like, okay, once we've established that something probably needs to be or happen for the good of the company, and we have to remember and put ourselves in the mindset of like, it's not about me, this is for the good of the company. It could be that I learned that something is, hey, getting rid of Tom is for the good of the company. Could be a hard decision, something that needs to happen though. And so we need to move forward with it. So. You know, we figured out maybe we also talk to advisors or, you know, as a management team as a whole, but make sure that we understand a hard decision. But then we try to move on things fast. And I've generally found that when you move on things fast, it's just kind of ripping off the Band-Aid. <laughs> you don't have that ladder sitting there for two weeks. You just get it done and you're able to kind of move on as a whole uh, much more effectively. But I, I do think that it's important to take time and to think and to make sure that what you're thinking about is the right thing to do. But like, once you've kind of established that, like, yes, this is what needs to be done. You should act on that quickly. Uh, You shouldn't just let it sit for a while because rarely does that work out too well. Yeah, I fully agree. And having been in this situation, uh, I think something you mentioned like about the mental space it takes you have to reassess it, reassess it, and it's becoming overwhelming even for you. And especially as the leaders of your organization, your focus, time, attention, even energy really matters. So if it's put into reassessing this particular decision, 
then this is the cost in the long term that we don't see until we make the mistake. Mm -hmm. That's that's the best way to learn through pain, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> okay, and I had a, then a question on a different theme that I ask also all my guests, and uh, for you as well about diversity and inclusion. That's also it's a big it's a big theme in gaming, so I wanted to hear more your own thoughts, position about it. Or are there any particular things you are doing personally or in the company to support it? Yeah. So this is something that I think about a lot and also struggle with a lot. Mm -hmm. So we currently don't have a ton of females working with us, much to my chagrin. And I was uh, recently interviewing a female candidate who hopefully by the time this release uh, actually uh, comes on and joins us. But she actually asked me, she's like, there doesn't seem to be a lot of women on the team. Like, you know, why is that? What is and I, I clearly laid it out. And I mm -hmm. said, you know, I, I don't, or I, I try to view people as people, right? I think everyone is special. Everyone is unique. Everyone has value to this world. But at the same time, would you rather that I hire you because you're a woman or because you are absolutely the best person for me to have on the team. And, and she said, well, you know, I would rather you hire me because I am. And I said, that's great because I think you absolutely are the best possible person that we could have on the team. I don't care that you're a woman. I, I could care less about, you know, anything else about you. I care that you could bring so much value to the team and you emulate exactly the core values that we want to grow. So to me, I think the first thing that I look for is like core value alignment, like, Um, in this case, you know, she is so user focused on, mm -hmm. you know, who is using my product or my game and how do I make the best possible experience? And like, as soon as I heard that, I, I was, you know, something clicked like, okay, this seems like something's really right here. But at the same time, I think, you know, especially in gaming, gamers are very diverse, right? So I think having diverse teams and being able to truly be creative, we need different sorts of mindsets. Like I don't want 10 other Toms thinking the same way that Tom thinks at the company because they're going to arrive at the same sort of conclusions that I did. And I'm wrong probably nine out of 10 times, right? So, you know, the more that we can have these different kind of creative people that still emulate the core values and still, you know, have excellent worth ethics and still really support each other as a team, I think the better off that everyone is going to be. So I think diversity and, and inclusion is super important, but I don't think that that should trump making sure you've got a core value fit and making sure that like the person is the right person for the team, because you, you don't want to just harm the way that your team works. It's like, oh, I hired XYZ person, you know, because of their diversity over, you know, somebody else that would have brought the team a little bit closer together. So it's, it's something I struggle with because I, I want a lot more diversity, but I also want to make sure that we have the right people on the team. Hmm. And I think what you describe is really the hard balance to find. And I did have a conversation with also other people in a hiring manager position because, uh, yeah, you don't want to fall on the other side uh, of uh, positive discrimination where you just onboard people because of their gender, their race, or, you know, this, this is a, also a, a terrible direction. And I, I do believe as well, having made a, anyway a whole uh, class about that, 
But it's really important first to look at the values. Uh, that's what's what matters for your group, for what you're trying to achieve, your vision. And then look at the composition. Like, are you adding people who are too much of the same or uh, are contributing or complementing or adding, you know? Uh, there's often the conversation about culture fit versus culture add. And I think the main problem and challenge, I would say, to your comment, is really at the sourcing. How do we make sure that we have enough uh, diversity in the pool of candidates we uh, assess? And uh, that's also what I'm facing as a challenge when I find for some position just the same type of candidates. Like, oh no, <laughs> where? And we need to be super proactive about it. And I think that's the hardest part, like where to go, where to find, where to source. For me, the challenge personally is more there as a hiring manager than letting in people just to, for the sake of diversity. It's, it's, it's a complex topic. Yeah, I think one thing kind of hit me particularly strong. So Garrick, one of my co-founders, his fiance happens to be a Asian American. Um, and she said something to him offhandedly, which was, oh, yeah, if I looked at your LinkedIn, like it seems like you guys have a lot of white men, I would feel intimidated even applying to your company. And I was like, what? Oh, <laughs> how do we fix this? You know, we don't want to discourage different people from actually applying because that's going to lead to more of like a homogenous thing. So I think you're, you're right on the, the tip of uh, sourcing and stuff. And I think that's where, you know, either the head of studio or CEO, like, so I, I kind of have like three, three roles in my job. Um, marketing is one setting the vision and making sure that everyone knows that we're all going in the same direction towards the same goal. The second one. And the third one is hiring and, Typically, I've found that like posting on hiring boards and things like that, I've maybe gotten like one good like candidate that came, but it's so rare that you're going to find the best person in the world that they're looking at the very moment that you post the job, because most of those really, you know, rock star people are probably fairly happy with their job or not mm -hmm. like actively working. And so I feel like you've got to go out and search and look and make connections and build those connections. Because like, even though I might not be hiring right now, if I, you know, want to build a studio, I want to have my Sophie Vu's kind of queued up where it's like, Sophie, I need you to like, come with me and, and build me a new studio. So, you know, I, I think you've got to just kind of have that network and that's just got to be part of your job. And it might not necessarily feel like work, talking to people and making those connections and things. But, you know, when it comes, oh, I need to fill this role urgently, you want to at least know, hey, these are some candidates that I can, you know, bring in and talk through. And hopefully those candidates are going to be of like diverse backgrounds and stuff so that you can ensure that like you're finding both the best person, but you're also having these different sorts of mindsets and things. Yeah, it's a very good point, actually. Hiring doesn't start when you start to have a need. I forgot the book... Uh... I was using as a reference for hiring and they were mentioning in the book that you are permanently hiring basically by networking, you know, and it comes and goes and you keep uh, network. So it's super important. That helped me a lot, definitely, in the start of a, of a studio. All right. And then we're reaching also the end uh, of the podcast, given the time we have today. So to finish as well the conversation today, I always have these three questions looking towards a bright future. And my first question would be for you, what are the next big steps? 
Yeah, well, I think from a uh, company perspective, so we're kind of in the middle. So we built our kind of call it our MVP product, which I was actually surprised by how many people actually love it and think that it's great. But we're, we're in the process of building out kind of our full, real, truthfully designed product. We were lucky enough to be able to spend most of last year just talking to all those studios. And I actually was able to closely work with the guy who designed the tool for Huge Games and for Plarium and for Social Point and a number of other different places. And so we were able to kind of take bunch of the best pieces of all those tools, kind of meld them together and <laughs> spend a lot of time making a really great user flow. And so we're kind of building out that tool right now. Should go up in like September. We probably want to do like six months or so where we work with like 10 studios, kind of a limited approach. And then at some point uh, next year, we'll kind of open that up to another maybe like 10 or 20 studios to just kind of take this slow iterative approach and making sure that we're building the right things for people. So that, that's kind of the next step for user-wise. For me personally, I would say the big next thing that's coming in my life is we just found out uh, our little uh, number three is going to be a boy who's coming in October. So I'm super excited for that. I've got two little girls now, but we'll finally add another boy to the mix. Oh. So it'll be good. Yeah. So we have to come up with a name. <laughs> we're terrible at coming up with names. So we're on the clock. <laughs> Very sweet. Congratulations. I heard that is one of the biggest projects that occupy like future parents. <laughs> and my second question, uh, who was your role model in the industry or personally, you know, that inspired you to be the way you are today? You know, I would say, uh, I'm probably going to say his name wrong, but uh, Joachim Akron mm -hmm. really kind of inspired me towards doing marketing and stuff. So Uh, a lot of people don't necessarily know this because I do a good job of hiding it, but I'm pretty introverted. So while I, I might come off as extroverted sometimes, yeah, my default setting is introverted. And so the idea of doing marketing and posting things on LinkedIn or doing blogs or podcasts was like super intimidating to me. But, you know, I, I saw Joachim doing it and my, my business coach was like, well, you've been talking about doing marketing for a while, so why don't you just do it? And so I, I believe that like, hey, you got to make those hard decisions. You got to just start doing it now. And so like that very day, I started like just I think posting on LinkedIn was like the first thing that I did. And then we just kind of expanded it from there. But yeah, you know, pushing yourself through those hard things. But just seeing Joachim do that was uh, really powerful to me and encouraged me to feel confident in doing so. I wouldn't have believed that if you didn't mention that you are introvert. I... <laughs> But yeah, <laughs> at least publicly, you don't seem as if, but then I can imagine as you say that. And yeah. And then my last question, if you had one thing you wish to change right now in the industry, what would it be? Hmm. I really don't like how our industry is so much into this idea of churn and burn. So I actually just started writing an article yesterday because I keep getting all these questions from people about the business of gaming. But, you know, fundamentally, we're largely a performance marketing where we arbitrage people and ideally we make more than we spent on them. And then we take that extra pro profit and put it back into acquiring more people. And it's just kind of this churn and burn. We get all these downloads, we make X amount of money, and then like we keep going through without really sometimes realizing that users are people too. And every user is valuable regardless of what country they come from. And 
and I just think there's a lot of value that we're throwing mm-hmm. away uh, because of how we're doing game development. And in some cases, like, it makes sense. It's hard to have ROAs that take over a year to recoup unless you're, you know, of some of the biggest companies, right? But like, I, I look at myself and my play styles of Clash of Clans. <laughs> I didn't spend money on that game probably for like three years. But now I've spent hundreds of dollars in that game, mostly through battle passes and other little things. And so had I been one of those like churn and burn and Supercell didn't take this more like long-term approach, they never would have saw anything out of me. But over the course of the game, they saw a lot of value coming out. And I I just wonder how many other players, like most people aren't going to take out their wallet and spend or do monetization type activities right away because they don't know that like, this is my game or this is where I'm going to spend time in. But the more that we get engaged in things and they become like our hobbies and our interests, the more that we spend money on them. Like you look at people that play golf, you probably don't spend a lot of money on golf early on, but like, as you play more and more golf and you get better and better, you want the higher end clubs and balls that are going to make you be just a little bit better. And you don't really care that you're spending money on it because it's like such a hobby to you and you love it so much. And so you're spending more and more and more on it. I feel like we're kind of missing this in games and we're not really taking the, the long-term mindset towards how do we get people in and keep them around for years? Because the longer that we keep people around, the more entertained, the more that this is a hobby for them, the easier it is for them to ultimately, you know, take out that wallet and spend some money in the game and really build those long-term relationships with players. So I would love to see that mindset switch to more as much as possible, I guess. Yeah. Thank you for this uh, point of view. And it it will make me reflect as well, because we are definitely looking in short-term profitability. And uh, there are many ways for a player to contribute in a game and things that are not always tangible, but the word of mouth. You like really Mm -hmm. something really well and you talk about it and you are bringing other players. So this, from a pure marketing point of view, does have value. It's not always factored in, but uh, that's one and uh, of course, coming from a hyper-casual company, there's also the uh, value as well of watching, you know, ads. But there are many ways. And I, I would say with games, it's it's a relationship in the long term where you, you don't know what you like, really like until you have put uh, yourself more emotionally. And we maybe expect this to happen early or too fast, where there yeah. sometimes things take time. And then... It's not any more a question if you put money into something you value as a person, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, good uh, thoughts of wisdom. Things for me to think about. Thanks, Tom. And this is it for today. So thanks a lot for your, all your insights and uh, just getting to know you a little more behind your podcast and uh, user-wise. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we'll keep in touch soon. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me, Sophie. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this new episode of Raise and Play podcast. If you enjoyed the content and want to support what we're doing, rate and review the podcast, spread the word about it. If you'd like to contribute to the change too, reach out to me on LinkedIn for a collaboration. You'll find all the rest of the content on riseandplay.io, including my free masterclass on conscious leadership. Until the next time, 